Richard. Hello, Heather. It's number four. It is, yeah. Number, number four, four, Wiggly Podcast. And this week we've got Farmer Phil coming in. Uh, we've got, ooh, a customer has emailed us in about Bokashi. You know, we spoke about that last yeah. week. And we've got Alison coming back with Plants of the Week. You and I are going to talk about preparing our pond for winter. Yeah, that's right. And we've got a book review. We're going to talk about the uh, Collins Wild Guide about butterflies and moths this week. So a short book, nice little Collins Guide book. Don't do it yet, Rich, don't do it yet. And then we've got, as usual, the Monty's uh, Wormcast. So I think we'll get on with today's topics. Fire away. most exciting thing that happened this week has got to be when I went round to Debbie and Gadgets. Right. You know, have you met Debbie uh, and Gadget? No. I oh, well. There's some uh, friends of ours in Preston, and Gadget is, as his namesake is, he is a gadget. Yeah. Uh, you go in, and uh, he films you going up the path, so when you get to the door, he opens the door and says, Hi, Heather. And <laughs> when, when you go in, he's got a massive movie screen and you sit down and the lights dim the curtains draw and popcorn appears automatically <laughs> it's fantastic that sounds great yeah, and so, so right up my street yeah and in the in the kitchen there's a fridge for this and a fridge for that everything's automatic yeah brilliant yeah. and i go in the kitchen and there on the wall is a computer screen that is not just a computer screen it's yeah. a touch screen right and Debbie orders her Tesco shop, you know, online or whatever it is, yeah, right. automatically. Oh, I need a bit of cheese. I'll press the button and then it adds to the list and yeah. it comes. And she, on there, she's got iTunes, listen to her music. And I said, have you listened to the Wiggly podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, what's a podcast? And yeah. you're going to be a podcast addict. And I am a podcast addict. So I said, you just press this button here. Press subscribe. Did it with my finger. And down came the Wiggly podcast in her kitchen. Well, I was just jumping around with glee yeah. because all the rest of our Amdram group came round. And there was you, Rich, yeah, yeah. wittering on about <coughs> bumblebees. And then Farmer Phil's report, and everyone was like, wow, <laughs> how can this be? Yeah. It was that's really... That's really, must have been really good. Yeah, because we're, going, we're, yeah, we're trying to do a Christmas cowl in our local church at Christmas. Right. So we're just there to watch this DVD. Okay, so uh, everyone had a good night anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, good. Um, what else were we going to talk about? We've got, I think we were going to talk about the Gorgeous Gardens initiative, weren't we? That was interesting, wasn't it? We had a visit from Sarah Aylin from Hereford Nature Trust. Yeah, yeah. And she spoke to you. So what, what was that about? It's a, a neat initiative that's been coordinated through the Nature Trust right the way across the UK, Wildlife Trust, Nature Trust. What they're doing is they're looking for gardens, suitable gardens, right the way across the UK to open for open days during the summer next year. And, uh, and then any of the proceeds that are generated through visitors uh, yeah. you know, going to those gardens are then donated to the to the Nature Trust. So really it's um, Nature Trust's charities that they are generating income for themselves. Yeah, but I also like the fact that they call it gorgeous gardens, but they're specifically looking for gardens that are good for wildlife. They are. They're looking for exactly that, looking for gardens that are, that are rich in wildlife, rich in biodiversity. If we were in a town, I'd say just up our street. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But we're yeah. not, so I'll say just down our lane. Yeah, yeah, that's... that's <laughs> That's very good. Thank you, Rick. Farmer Phil has driven in 
It's over to you, Rich. Hi, Phil. Hi, Rich. How are you? Not Hi. very well, yeah. Yeah, it's good to see you again. What have you been up to this week? Well, more planting, really. I mean, it's, it's the time of year when we, we plant all our winter crops. The, the grass seed is planted, then the winter barley, and then the winter wheat. Do you think the seasons have changed a bit? I mean, would you be able to plant slightly later than, say, you would have done 10, 20 years ago? It's quite interesting. 10, 20 years ago, there would have been much less winter cropping. The majority of it would have been planted in the spring. Right. Basically, because the ability to grow the varieties, the weed killers and so on, work and the varieties themselves will grow nicely. They bred good varieties to do that, and they'll survive the winter and so on. I was talking to him, Rich, about you know, the fact is that sometimes he uses pesticides. Yeah, yeah. You know, having a normal argument with yeah, him. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And he was talking about how he's now applying them in the autumn, weren't you, Phil? Well, there are some things that um, I discovered that Heather thought that I did that I didn't actually do. <laughs> <laughs> in the course of an argument, yeah, the example given was that Heather assumes that because we're not an organic farm, yeah. that I apply insecticides all the time as a sort of, if I can't think of anything else to do, we'll slip a bit of that on. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is that on a cereal crop, we only apply one pesticide in the autumn, and therefore the effect of insecticides on the bugs and creepy crawlies throughout the spring and summer months is nil. The insecticide that we put on is an aphicide, and it clears up the last aphids of the season which are carrying a virus that the cereal crop gets that we can't treat it's, it's oh, incurable right. and it's devastating to yield right. so the obvious way to do it and it's nice and cheap as well is to just clear up the last few aphids which are carrying the virus when the crop is young and thereafter the crop doesn't catch the virus over the winter because there are no aphids obviously because it's winter time and by the springtime it's too late for it to affect the crop right but you see, one of the biggest problems and arguments that he and I ever had is slug pellets. Because right. slug pellets and worms are an slug, utter slug disaster. Thing, really, yeah. Big, yeah, yeah. But the other morning, I cycled to meet him and he took me off to a field. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as, you, as you do, that bring back memories of, of old? Not really, no. Oh. Um, <laughs> and we went off to this field and I wonder what was going to happen yeah. and in fact he inspected the crop and announced that he didn't need to put any slug pellets on so right. I was really pleased with that Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. so that's really changed hasn't it it has, first, the first thing I should say is that there are slug pellets and slug pellets the best slug pellets are devastating to worms and snails hence the reason they're good on slugs yeah. the, the lesser ones, given that conditions are dry, are less harmful to worms and they will do the slugs in Right. But by far the best way of doing it is if we can get the ground consolidated enough so that the slugs can't move around and get the crop away early, yeah. we don't need to put any on at all. Is that an initiative that other farmers would share with you, though? I mean, are, are yes, other farmers I, I conscious think, of that? I think that most farmers in this day and age, profits are not what they were. And that if you've got no worries about the environment at all, just the sheer cost saving makes most of them think, well, if I don't need to do it, I won't do it. I think that nowadays most farmers are a lot more responsible about what they do and they think about it a lot more than they did five or ten years ago. Mm. and that the cost implication helps that process along. Um, one, of, one of the things that interests me is we always hear about the no-dig method in the garden. You know, it's best not to dig because worms make their burrows and they actually turn the soil for you. They're really good as ploughs. Yeah. And yet, in the field, you know, you are ploughing, aren't you? We plough because our soil 
seems to benefit from being ploughed and it's an effective means of reducing the weed population and the volunteer, in our case, grass and cereals population. There is currently a lot of work going on and it's quite a popular alternative not to plough but we feel that it doesn't work as well on our type of soil because there's a lot of stone in it and the position that we are in the country means that our harvest is later. The non-ploughing methods involve shallow cultivation to encourage all the weed seeds to chit and then you spray that off with glyphosate, quite an environmentally friendly chemical, it's not a problem but it, it's systemic so you spray off the flush with that, cultivate it again and drill it. In our area, sort of where harvest is a bit later, we don't very often get the time to have that cultivation and chit and spray, right. which is one reason. The plough is very effective at killing grass weeds because if you plough them in properly, it kills them. Mm. And you like doing it, don't you? I like ploughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's on it. He just sits on yeah. it all day. He's totally it's a good happy. It's to clear your mind. Mm. It is quite therapeutic. It's, it's very isn't it? therapeutic. There's nothing like the smell of freshly turned earth, as any gardener will tell you. And where do the seagulls come from, Phil? <laughs> Sadly, from the local tip these days, I'm led to believe. There's a bit of competition for the poor old seagulls these days because the buzzards have discovered that they like worms, and we've got a lot of buzzards. Buzzards and seagulls don't mix very well. No, that's interesting. They don't yeah. seem to like each other so much. You, so, who, so who wins, the buzzards? The, the buzzards, buzzards, usually. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that annoys the buzzard, and it's not that it, he loses, but he gets fed up with it, is, uh, is if the crows come yeah, and mob him. start mobbing him, yeah. And that the seagulls him. don't mob the buzzards? No, the seagulls just disappear when the buzzards arrive. Oh. I think on that note, Phil, you can buzzard off. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> We had a great response to our Bokashi article and lots of people actually started using Bokashi in their composters. So I've got an email here from Bridget Purchase and she says, I've read about your Bokashi bins and I'm very interested in purchasing the value pack. One problem though, while I am fully converted to recycling, my husband is proving a tough nut to crack. When you say you can empty a full bin after two weeks and dig the contents into the garden where they'll compost amazingly quickly, what sort of state will the contents be in, i.e. will they resemble their original selves, and how quickly will they compost down? Interesting. Well, it is interesting, of course, because the Bokashi really kind of pickles the waste yeah. in the Bokashi bucket. It doesn't really start to break stuff down until it's in the soil, does it? No, so it does look like the stuff that you put in. Except it, it's not smelly, is it? No. And it's slightly shriveled and a slightly different colour. Yeah. It lose its colour, doesn't it? But essentially, if you can't bear the food that you put on your plate, then you're not going to bear the food that's in your bucket. No. But if no. you can bear the food that's on your plate, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's in, in short, it's not a rancid mess in the bottom of the bucket, is it? All rotten and smelly. Hopefully not. No. Um, liquid feed, that, that can be smelly, mine. So that, that, that can be an issue. But essentially, you put that down the drain, so I don't think your husband's really going to get involved in that. No, You're going to open no. the tap, and I it's going to go fine. down the drain. And certainly, compared to a normal dustbin bag, you know, your husband's going to put out that bag yeah. sometime, so there's going to be that waste in there. Well, this way is miles more hygienic, so I'd say go for it. Yeah, definitely, go for it. Good luck. Bring him round. Well, Rich, it's time for Alison's spot. It was really interesting to hear about those... Zwart balls, or what were they out? Zwart bless. Zwart bless, yeah. yeah. Chocolate sheep. Yeah. Comes up all sorts of ideas of sheep melting in the in front of fires and stuff. <laughs> 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 what stage 
age are they at now then, Al? Are they, have they been to the um, RAM? Yes, they've just gone into the RAM and they're probably on second week with um, Wilf from Bill. Wilf from Bill. Oh, Wilf from Bill. Yes, he's the most adorable RAM. Is he? Yes, he really is. And he and is a purebred dwarf. Yes, less. yes he is. Yeah. And tell us about this Mayne Visna, Mayde Visna. Oh, MV. Yeah. Yeah, well, all pedigree flocks should be MV um, accredited. It takes over a year to become MV, and you oh. have to have... Um, what is it? Well, it's a blood test. You have to have a blood test done. It's something to do with the disease on the brain, which they get, which all sheep in the next, I think it's the next five or ten years, um, have to be MV accredited. So the point is that you've got that now. Well, I've got another test in February, and then I should be totally MV accredited, which makes mine worth quite a bit more money. Basically. Yeah, and but also um, adds to the paper pile of what farmers have to do, I suppose. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get well, all sorts of certificates. Yes, and it's absolutely awful. They fill in lots of pieces of paper, Rich, and then they get money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a pain for you, Al. Yeah. <laughs> All good fun. Then. Yeah, yeah. The the sheep. Where where have they come from originally? Then uh, they originate from Holland. Really? Mm. Yes. So did you bring them over or not? Well, some clever person brought them over um, and started off in the UK ten years ago. Yeah. And then it's grown and grown from there. And how many have you got? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Yes. And how much land does it take to keep these? Well, because a parent's farm, they have other sheep which aren't MV accredited. They have to be kept on their own, causing a bit of a problem at the moment. <laughs> they have to have their own fields, which has uh, <laughs> taken over two farms. Which <laughs> uh, is all good fun. And they have to be double fenced, and they're not allowed to share the same water tanks, and all sorts of rules and regulations like that. Should we ask mm, a rich if this is a commercial flock or a hobby flock? Yeah, you can ask. <laughs> Alison, <laughs> is this a commercial enterprise or a hobby flock? Well, it's <laughs> it's um, sort of my pension fund flock. <laughs> oh, does <laughs> that sound much more yeah, exciting yeah, the pension than the flock? Very yeah, good. than the yeah. prudential. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, most uh, people go with London, London, <laughs> whatever they call it. Yeah, them, was know. it standard life? Standard life. Yeah, yeah. Alison's got a She's herd of chocolate sheep. Balls. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on to plant of the week. Tell us what you've got there, Al. Um, plant of the week, uh, cowslip this week. Now, cowslips, it's a bit boring, isn't it, love? A bit boring? Not at all, no. I mean, cowslips, they used to be quite plentiful around in the 1940s between the 19 and the 1970s. They were completely wiped out almost in this country. Really? Um, yes. Uh, it's not until they started doing roadsides and things and scattering more seed around that the cowslips are beginning to become more popular now. They're beautiful, yeah, though. Yeah, they're absolutely lovely. Well, why are they lovely. called cowslips? Is it just because they're found in meadows? Or I suppose <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it must be. I mean, the... the uh, Pasture t- land, cowslips. There's yeah. two... Um, it's your take on it anyway, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's two yeah. names for them that they used reason. to call them. Cow slop and cow pat. Um, and this probably generates from um, where they like to be found, in the, in the grassland meadow. By a cow... By a cow pad. <laughs> mm. yeah. And I found out that they used to be called Our Lady's Keys. And that was because it was thought that they were found on the ground where St Peter dropped his keys. You know, the one on the way yeah, into right. heaven. Him. Ah, yeah. Ooh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Now, and the other thing is, apparently, if you plant a cowslip upside down, 
it grows red. It's not true. It's not true. But that's a widespread belief. I think you've been telling people that. It's not true. Maybe ringing that to them. That's good advice there. This is one of the first signs of spring, though, isn't it? Traditionally, you know, the cowslips were out and the the time... Yeah, and you see them all along the Winter's coming to an end and... Yeah, that's right. If you want to plant them, in the wild, they're often found in real clumps, aren't they? Oh, yeah, Yeah. masses of clumps. And that's because they they self-seed quite readily. Uh, if you collect the, the green seed and scatter it onto your lawn, the next year you'll have a mass of cowslips. But the thing is, if you, when you collect the seed, like we have to collect the seed to grow plants for future use. Yeah. Uh, that seed's quite hard to germinate. But in ah. the green seed, it, well, well, it just comes out really well. Because mm. yeah. your, your seed is coming from SSI meadows, isn't it? Often? Um, no, well, it shouldn't come off triple um, SI meadows, no. What do you do? How does um, it work? We um, plant 50 metres of cowslips and then harvest off our own beds. Right. Yeah, which come off meadows which we have permission to collect from. I yeah. see. Because this, the seed can be traced back, so the last thing that you want anyone to do is to go and... <coughs> Well, it's illegal, isn't it, to yeah, actually go and see. dig up a cowslip or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, they are protected, yeah. But the ones that you've got there, that one is a genuine oh, native... genuine native cowslip, that one, yeah. You do get others that... Um, you get the oxlip, which are crossed between a primrose and a cowslip, and they're a bigger version of the cowslip, bigger flower. Ah. looks exactly like a cowslip, but grows a lot taller. And I suppose yeah. if you weren't interested in the provenance then that just gives you a bit bigger display in the garden yeah, does absolutely, it yeah absolutely yeah a naturally occurring specimen or is that something that you have to you know that's well, if you, you plant them together you'll get across yeah well we should say how high they are how high do they grow to because otherwise um, you know in case anyone doesn't know they grow about to about 30 centimeters Height. And then they've got like a rosette around the bottom. The leaves yeah, the don't leaves keep up with them, do they? No, they don't. They, they just grow outwards along the grass. Yeah. And when would you plant it? Well, all, all year round, really. It's a spring flowering plant, so you can plant it now um, and then it'll flower in the spring. Mm. It's a fairly early flower. It is, I think, is it? isn't it? One of the, fir- the yeah. earliest yeah. of the wildflowers to First, come. along with the primrose, as it comes along. You can have a second flush of flowers late into the... August, September time. Double your money there. Double your money, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Al. Hope Zwarbler sheep go well. And I'd like to keep up to date with those, really. Yeah, yeah. You like the idea of chocolate Well, are we we talking to Alison again next week? I think we made it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll probably end up having some sort of plant of the week, will we? I I should have to buy a Zwarbler sheep to go with your chocolate dog and the chocolate cat. (laughs) (laughs) And I expect you're willing to charge me some exorbitant price for a (laughs) Zwarbler. Thank you very much, Al. Thank you. Rich, yeah. let's dive in, shall we? Yeah, it's dive. pond preparation for the winter. Get very it? Good, dive very in. Good. Yeah, yeah, let's dive in. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Tell us all about it. There's a few things you can do. October's a good month because a lot of amphibians, frogs and newts, are just starting to think about hibernating. So whilst they might be in the pond, it's not too late to disturb them. It's a good time to take out a lot of the leaf litter that's going to go into the pond. A lot of leaves are obviously coming off the trees now, so it's a good time to scoop those off the surface. Good to have a few. A bit of detritus in the bottom of the pond is is useful, Mm. uh, but you don't want too many because too many leaves are in a pond, they start to decompose and they can create toxic gases and whatnot. So it's good to keep the leaves at bay. Don't Uh really want to... Pond has got lots of oxygenating plants, you know, I mean, like 
yeah, tons it of it. Lots of elodea, isn't it? Yeah. Does yeah. that matter? Or? No, it's good to have lots of elodea in the pond. Uh, elodea is a really good oxygenator, and it provides a fantastic medium for inverts like dragonfly nymphs and damselfly larvae and yeah. stonefly larvae. And so just like leave that. that? Yeah, leave it. Or you could perhaps take some out in preparation for, for next year. Mm. If your pond is completely full of, full of the stuff, choked up, then perhaps this is, this is a good time of year to take it out. Mm. If you're going to leave it, then obviously it's going to proliferate more in the spring, so you're going to get even more next year. So if you're thinking about taking stuff out, this is probably a good time of year to do it. When you take stuff out, a good guide is to just leave it on the edge of the pond for a day or so, and it gives the opportunity for anything that's living in there to crawl out and then back down into well, the that's pond. That's a good idea. Yeah. And then after you've done that, you can just take it down and put it on the compost heap. Lots no, no then. Fishy, fishborn. Yeah. yeah, fishborn yeah. by name. <laughs> what about fish? We don't want them. We don't. No, no, we don't. You do love fish, them, you fish. do. I do I love fish. You do, yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm quite passionate about fish. But interestingly enough, in a wildlife pond, fish aren't such a good thing because they do have a, a propensity to eat you know, mm. your tadpoles <laughs> and, yeah, and your newt larvae. So, uh, yeah, so it yeah, could affect If it you really want fish and wildlife, then perhaps it's best to have two ponds, you know, have a, have a pond specifically for wildlife and one specifically for fish. And the animals will soon suss out which one they need to spend <laughs> their time in. <laughs> they definitely will, won't they? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Okay, so we've sort of cleared the leaves out of it and we've made sure that anything that's left in the pond has had a chance to crawl back into the pond. Yeah. Sorted out our oxygenating plants. Um, it's now time for winter. What do we do? Throw a net over it or...? No, no, the nets aren't such a good thing, even though like you know, the sentiment, the, kind of, the idea of putting a net over a pond to keep the leaves off, Yeah. in theory, that's a good idea, but... You've got problems, you're stopping birds from getting into the pond to drink and to bathe. Right. And also, there's, a, there's every chance that birds can get tangled up in the net and die as a consequence. Mm. So, well, what are you going to do instead then? It's just it's a bit more labour-intensive, I know, but the best thing is to, is to use a net to scoop the leaves off the top of the pond. Right. Um, as soon as you've got a few leaves floating on the top, just pop out you know, for, for a couple of minutes and scoop them off, take them off, put them on a compost heap. Lovely. So um, we're ready for winter then? That's about it, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Rich. It's time for this week's book review. This week we've got The Collins Wild Guide to Butterflies and Moths by John Still. Um, you've had a good look at this one, haven't you, Rich? Yeah, these are great books. I really like these Collins Guide books, especially now that they use photographs. So it's so much easier to just flick through the book and identify what it is that you're looking at. Mm. But there's also stuff in the beginning of the book that gives you a taster of other things. You know, it asks what are butterflies and moths, you know, the importance of butterflies and butterflies and moths in, uh, in in the ecology. And it also gives you a key. There's a key at the beginning of the book and tells you how to use the book, which is really important. It really mm. kind of simplifies the whole process of identifying what you're looking at, which is what you want. When you're wandering about in the countryside, you want to be able to you grab your little book and have a quick squiz and see what that animal is that you're looking at. Yeah, and I think... To have the moths in amongst it all is really good because they are much less romantic than butterflies. But we see so many more moths all the time that you can use the book more often because the moths are in amongst it all. Absolutely. It's interesting though, isn't it? People often think moths as being fairly dreary and less interesting than butterflies. But some of the species of moths we've got are absolutely amazing. It's just that we, we tend not to see them. Obviously, they're kind of, most species of moths are, are, are nocturnal. Not all of them. You get, you know, yeah, we had that hummingbird, hummingbird in the hawk, summer. Moth, and Valerian oh, out here. Yeah, it was yeah. really exciting, wasn't yeah, it? fantastic. Those are beautiful things. It's amazing to think that they fly all the way up from northern Europe as well. 
You know, they kind of fly across our uh, English Channel and, and you know come out the uh, yeah, and they even go country. to they even go up to Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah, it's a long old way for a little animal to fly, isn't it? Totally. But this it is well worth having. I think if you were going to um, if you're keen on on walking in the countryside, then it's definitely worth taking something like this with you because Do you think it's a bit big. Um, probably not really. Uh, you tend to if you're going out for a nice walk, it'd be a bit big for a, just a casual stroll with the dogs, perhaps. Yeah. But if you're going out walking proper, you've got your rucksack with your water in and whatnot. It's nice to be able to pop one mm -hmm. of these either in your rucksack or in your, in your pocket. The reason this is fairly substantial compared to some guidebooks is that there's pretty much all the species that you're likely to encounter are in this book. So all the know, UK species. All the, all the UK yeah. species. Yeah. 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 Well, it's 256 pages. And there's a moth or a butterfly to each page. And then, practically speaking, it's covered with a waterproof it's a nice, cover. That's right, it's got a nice waterproof cover. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty robust little book. Right, Rich, we need a rating. Yeah. How would you rate butterflies and moths on the chocolate scale? The chocolate scale? What's the explain the chocolate scale? I don't you know the chocolate scale. No, no, oh. no. OK, from one to five, bad to good. OK. Number one, here she is. <laughs> Number two, Nestle. Mm. Number three, Cadbury's. Uh, 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 uh. Number four, Galaxy. <sighs> Controversial, but that total smooth, milky feeling. <laughs> and top of the tree is, without doubt, go on that skiing holiday. Remember that taste. Purple wrapper, milker. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> Come on, come on, rating, rating. I'd definitely say it's a milker. Milker? It does, it does exactly what it says on the cover. It's a handy, neat little book. Yeah. That's right, not so. milker. Milker <laughs> is... That's the same colour as milker <laughs> wrapper as well. Handy little book does what it says on the cover. Yeah. That's Cadbury's well, for me. It is. That's Cadbury's. What that's what we're... That's what <laughs> Cadbury's. No, it's Cadbury's. It's the last word on it. You can't give no. the first book a milker. Perhaps you get better books on butterflies and moths that aren't guides, aren't field guides. Okay. But as a field guide, mm. definitely a milker. It's time for Monty with his Wormcast. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. The largest earthworm ever found was in South Africa and measured six and a half metres from its nose to the tip of its tail. This is the end, Rich, That's of it. number four. Shame, isn't it? All yeah. good things must come to an end, yeah. I suppose. But I really do feel we've tasted lots of chocolate <laughs> today, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> You've never heard of the chocolate no. rating, have no, you? No, no. I, I, think, I think you'll be surprised how few people have. <laughs> really, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think you'll find it's an insight to women, Rich. Do you think so? I do, I yeah. do. I think if you yeah, ask 99.9% of all women how they rate anything in life, it's they will rate it on the chocolate. chocolate ratings. Oh. So remember, number one, yeah. Hershey's. Mm. No good. Yeah, no. you don't. Do you like Hershey's? No, it's rancid. No. Number two, Nestle. Number three, Cadbury's. Good, solid company. Use a lot of farmer's milk round here. Right. Yeah, based at Marlborough. Yeah. Number four, I can hardly talk about it without it swallowing. Galaxy. And number five, we can't say it. Just don't say it.